Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out on President's Day to celebrate a publication of the Atlas Maneuver with Steve Berry. So Steve was just reminding us that he was here for his first book, The Amber Room. And um, subsequent to that, I've actually been to Russia to see the Amber Room, only it's not the real Amber Room, it's the recreated Amber Room. And who was it that just has done a book where chasing after the Amber Room? Um, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, is part of the part of the story. Was it? Yeah, they were going to raise it from the bottom of you know the ship that purportedly yeah, went down. Some talk that it went down in the Baltic, but unfortunately, that's not probably true. No, it probably just got blown up in it, whatever castle it was in. The best, yeah, the best estimate is the Russians vaporized it. Uh, amber goes from solid to gas at 220 degrees, and Königsberg Castle, where it was stored by the Germans, uh, they set fire to it and melted stone. That's how hot the fire was. And there's a report in that day in Konigsberg of a, a scent of perfume all over town. And when amber burns, it gives off a scent of perfume. So the best estimate is the Russians just, blew it, just vaporized it, didn't know, didn't know any better. However, it's a very handsome reproduction, so should you go? Oh, it's beautiful. I've <laughs> seen an, it. Yeah, yeah. right. Not, um, I was laughing yesterday because they had was a Mission Impossible of Tom Cruise. Why I wasted an hour and a half of my, or two hours of my life watching it, I'm not sure, but my husband wanted to watch it. And, um, you know, they were Sebastopol as part of the plot. And I can remember in 2011 taking a cruise around the Black Sea and actually cruising the Russian Navy in a little Russian tour boat. We were the only Americans on it. And, you know, and I think about how fast the world has turned. I mean, 2011 to 2024, and you can't do that anymore or go see the Amber Room. But we are here tonight to talk about another part of the war, which was the Japanese theater. Um, is it true? Is what, what true? Is, is Yamashita's Gold? Oh, Yamashita's Gold, yes. It, it no, is. I'm sorry, yes, the Japanese yeah. theater is definitely true. <laughs> yeah, Yamashita's Gold is real. It actually, uh, the Japanese pillared Southeast Asia. They, the Germans stole, but the Japanese stole more. They did it longer. They started in about 1931, 1932. They stole for about 12 years. And they had a lot of gold and a lot of silver and a lot of precious metals. And they were trying to get it back to, to uh, Japan. It was for the emperor. It was basically for him. And we blockaded off uh, Japan. They couldn't get there, so they, they took it to the Philippines. And General Yamashita was told, bury it. Put it in, put it in the ground, but make sure we can find it when we go back. Because what we're going to do is when this war's over, we'll make a peace. When we make the peace, we'll get the Philippines. Philippines will be ours, and we'll go back and get it. Well, of course, they didn't know about the atomic bomb, unfortunately, and you know it, they did, it was an unconditional peace. They lost the Philippines. What happened to the gold after that is the question. Um, there is a strong – we know for a fact that some of it was found. Uh, General Yamashita was quickly captured, tried, and hung. Uh, he did not want to cooperate with the Americans at all, and they wanted him dead and gone because he was about the only one alive who actually knew where all the underground vaults were. There was one map. It was sent back to Japan. It was never seen again. Clues are left in the ground, the trees, the rocks. They left all kinds of markings to find everything. All the, cache, all the underground vaults were booby-trapped. But the Americans did find some. And some of that gold was taken off of the Philippines, and some say it was taken by the OSS and was eventually inherited by the CIA when the CIA became into existence in 1948. 
and it went into something called the Black Eagle Trust, and the trust was used for covert operations by the American intelligence agencies. We don't know if that's true or false, but it was great for the story. <laughs> it, and because there's a, there is some evidence that there was something happened. We know for a fact America found some of them. Some of them. They got uh, Yamashita's uh, chauffeur to show them some of the locations who had driven him around. So we know they found some of it. But it just made for great here. I've known about it for a long time, but I couldn't figure out what do I do with it. I mean, you know, what do yeah. I do with it? <laughs> then Bitcoin. <laughs> Because Bitcoin came together. When those two came together, I was able to merge them, and it worked. Right. Well, we'll talk about Bitcoin, because one of the reasons I've urged you to buy this book is that it will possibly make crypto intelligible to you. I have never understood it, but thanks to reading Steve, I now have some faint grasp. But I want to go back to General Yamashita, because there is a book that came out um, from Simon & Schuster, I think, in February this month, a debut, um, and it's set in Malaysia, and a um, young woman living in Malaysia, a married mother, really resents the British, and therefore she lets herself be seduced by General Yamashita, and um, what I learned from that, among all the other things I learned, is that he was the mastermind that um, figured out how the Japanese could come into Malaysia and successfully mm -hmm. capture it want to tell them because I yeah, think it's defeated, a really neat story. He defeated the British and what Churchill said was probably one of the worst defeats they'd ever had and he was pretty much a mastermind of that. He was very good at the warfare that he waged and at the end of the war, they, the emperor see um, it was called Golden Lily is what the project was called. The, the um, Japanese emperor created Golden Lily and it was run by his brother the prince of Japan and they needed someone they could trust, someone they could implicitly trust who knew what they were doing. They knew the Philippines were in trouble. They needed someone who could hold the Philippines, so they sent Yamashita in there. But unfortunately, the war had already turned at that point. He, didn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't pull it off, and MacArthur came in, and they just started sweeping. And they were backing them up, backing them up further and further. And then finally, they got it all in the ground. And there's a prologue in the novel uh, that you know, with the, what happened on the last day, with the last vault, when he basically killed all the engineers and everyone who had it, had to do with it. And that's not me making that up. That's some who were there at the time told that to the OSS, that that's exactly what happened. Well, I want to back it up to Malaysia because Yamashita, um, thanks in theory to this, or in fiction to this young woman, I don't know how he knew it, discovered that all the British defenses were pointing seaward is the British, you know, it was all about the Navy and the ports. So the Japanese invaded Malaysia on bicycles. They came down from the north and caught the British completely unprepared, which I thought was absolutely fabulous. I mean, you know, we know so much more, I think, about the European theater than we do about yeah, the Pacific yeah. theater. Yeah, Churchill um, was very ashamed. He called it the worst defeat in British history. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, but who knew that, you know, bicycle riding Japanese warriors, presumably <laughs> no longer in full samurai costume, but rather otherwise adorned. But I didn't realize till I read your book, because I read hers first, what happened to Yamashita, that he, in fact, moved on to the Philippines. Japan. And they right. caught, him, caught him and hung him in 90 days. Supreme Court of the United States reviewed his case. Three justices dissented, saying it was a farce. The whole trial was basically... It was designed to kill him. <laughs> That's what it was. And basically, now that we know what we know, it's what it was. They wanted him out of the way. 
so that they could go in get those get that wealth they had no intentions of returning that wealth to anyone you you couldn't who would who would you give it to you didn't know where it would go it would have disrupted the price of gold horribly and remember at that time currency was based on gold and it really meant something if you had a currency you had to have the gold to back it up if you didn't have the gold the currency had no value flooding in all of that unaccounted for gold would have devalued currencies all across the globe so they they just made the decision and it went all the way to Truman himself we're going to keep it we're going to keep it no one really knows what happened to it we really don't know so if you're talking about serious money where what country would come to mind as the place where you might store some of it of course switzerland so by happy chance i was in switzerland in december in my favorite city in switzerland called basel and my favorite hotel called the three kings and, and I want to know, I assume, did you actually go to Basel? Because if you had, you would have had cotton staying at the I Three Kings. I did not get to go because it COVID came. We were going. Ah. We were going. And uh, COVID came and we couldn't go. But we're going to go. That is on our list. I want to go to Basel. I want to go to Strasbourg. I want to do that whole area. I want to do the French Alps. I've never actually done the French That's Alps. Beautiful. So that whole area in there. But that's one of the few places, a few times I've had to ride it without going to a location. Well, we know that the Swiss banks are not perhaps, probity is not perhaps one of their standards every time. And so what we have here is a rogue Swiss bank. But tell us about Cotton and how he got there. It's not only a rogue Swiss bank. It's, it's, it's something very interesting. It's, to, it's the oldest bank in the world. You know, it's what, what, we're, what we're talking about. And um, it's called the, it was called the Bank of St. George, and it was, ba it was based yeah. in Genoa, Italy. It existed from 1450 to 1805 when Napoleon disbanded it. I just moved it and got it going, kept it going, and just kept it going. But it existed for over 400 years, uh, that bank did. And so I, well, I needed someone to administer the Black Eagle Trust, so I said, let's use the oldest bank in the world to do that and put it together. And it, it, it worked out well uh, to have that because basically this is a book about a war between the CIA and this oldest bank that Cotton is right in the middle of. Um, so tell us about crypto. Well, I knew nothing about it. I mean, I really didn't. I didn't understand it. I, I didn't. It just didn't register in my brain. Uh, luckily, in our neighborhood, there's a gentleman. That's what he spent his whole career dealing with. He he buys crypto. He buys up exchanges that go under. He's accumulate. He's a crypto broker, basically, is what he does. And he taught me about it. He sat down, he taught me, he gave me the books to read. I read the books. I spent about a year learning about crypto and all about it. Not specifically, that's not crypto, but Bitcoin, particularly Bitcoin. Bitcoin is unique because it is finite. All the other cryptos are not finite. There's infinite amount they can produce. Crypto with, with Bitcoin, 21 million, that's it. There's no more after that. Right now, there's 19 million. So there's only 2 million more to go, then there'll be no more at that point. Then you just circulate those coins over and over and over and over again. And I wanted to, to, to deal with it because it's, it's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. These ones and zeros in a computer program, you know, become currency. And I, in my book, we go a little further. Right now, only one country has adopted Bitcoin as their currency. That's El Salvador. In my book, about 15 have. We've gone the next step. Now, there are several countries considering doing it. 
And then in the book also, we go one more step. They've not only adopted it as their currency, but they've adopted it as their reserve currency. They don't use the American dollar anymore. They use Bitcoin as their reserve currency to back up their entire economy. Now, there's a lot of talk around the, around the world of doing this. I didn't make this up because a lot of countries are tired of being on the, gold being on the American dollar standard, basically. They want to get off that standard because they open themselves up to American jurisdiction, American law enforcement, American everything. They don't, they don't want any of that. They just they don't want to have anything to do with it. So there's talk of doing this. So it occurred to me, what would happen if that happened? And then I learned something during the course of studying Bitcoin. There's a flaw in the Bitcoin system, a big, giant flaw right in the middle of it that the Bitcoiners don't like to talk about very much. They don't speak of it. But it's there, and it exists. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is. got to give away the novel. But uh, <laughs> there's a flaw in there, and this flaw was perfect for the novel. It said, that's what I want right there. That's exactly what I want right there. And so um, it's interesting. Now, the Bitcoiners say, well, the flaw could never happen. I said, don't tell me that now. <laughs> don't tell me something never could happen. <laughs> uh, it could happen. We don't. You don't know that. See, Bitcoin is prides itself on its anonymity. You don't know who owns what. You do know the wallets. All the wallets are online, about 300 million wallets online where people store their coins. But there's no names attached to those wallets, and there's no way to identify who owns those wallets. And those wallets trade among themselves all day long in hundreds of thousands of transactions. Those are all recorded. You can see them online. You can see every transaction. You don't know who's trading. You just see the trading. They pride themselves on the anonymity and the fact that no government controls it, and it's a peer-to-peer -peer system. Well, that cuts two ways. <laughs> that cuts two ways. You can have that anonymity is great, but it also opens yourself up to a real serious situation. And if you adopt Bitcoin as your reserve currency and someone gets control of Bitcoin, guess what? They control those economies. And so that's that's where we are. That's where we're that's that's where my the novel came from. Sounds perfect for criminal activity, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, what better way to be transferring stuff around? So let's go back and talk about the. I'm sorry, is it 21 million billion? What is it? 21 million. 21 million. Explain because I found this okay. fascinating. Mm -hmm. How how is it made and why is it limited to 21 well, million? Bitcoin is a is a computer program. And what happened is Satoshi Nakamoto is the creator of Bitcoin. We have no idea who that is. We have no clue. Could be a person, multiple people. One theory is it's the CIA, that the CIA actually created Bitcoin in 2008 because the economy was going to, world economy was on the collapse. They wanted a peer-to-peer -peer system where if it did collapse, people could trade money and do what they had to do. And they created Bitcoin as an emergency fail-safe mechanism. It's an interesting story, really, and but no one knows if that's true or not. And then it got out of hand. You know, the, the economies did not collapse. Bitcoin caught on. Um, you know, it's ones and zeros in a computer program, basically what it is. What happens is it's like a reverse lottery. You already know the numbers, but you've got to work the mathematics to create them yourself. And it takes a computer to back that out. To you, you know how you see on the on the TV all the time on the they put the thing on the electronic lock and it goes through all the permutations and finds which of course is absurd because there's millions of them. You know and it does it like in two seconds and it boom we got the digits. 
that's what you do in reverse. But in reality, it takes a very powerful computer to do that. So that's why they have very fast computers. And so each, right now, there's a, a, an equation has come up. Computers are solving that equation. The first one who solves that equation wins Bitcoin. Right now, um, it's 225. I can't remember. It's 225. Of, of, I think it is. Get ready to have another halving down to one, 120, maybe 250 right now. Uh, if you solve the equation, you get 250 Bitcoin that goes into your wallet. You win. It's like you win a game. You won. And now in, August, in April, that will half down to 125. Every four years or so, it halves. And it's going to go down to where it's zero. It keeps going down. We're towards the end right now. This has been going on since 2009. They've been solving these equations. That's why Bitcoiners need very powerful computers. That's why they eat up a lot of resources to run these computers. So you solve the equation, you win the Bitcoin. Now, in the beginning, Bitcoins were worth only pennies. And they you would get 10,000, 12,000, you know, when they first started off before it started halving down to where it is now. And if you accumulated those Bitcoins back then, those things are worth like, I don't know what the current price is. Is it what, 40000 something like that? I, I don't know what it is right now. Thirty, forty thousand $40,000 is a Bitcoin. It'll go up when the halving happens. It always does when a halving occurs. It goes up. So you solve the, you solve the equation, you win the Bitcoin. And you just, and it starts again. If the equation gets solved too fast, the computer program makes it more difficult. So it makes it harder to solve. If it gets solved too slow, it loosens it up a little bit. They, it, the program wants you to solve it, but you, you, you have to do it. Well, it's just a, it's just a computer program that keeps in. It's amazing. But when you're done, you, you, when the computer solves the problem, you get the Bitcoin. Can't you transfer bitcoins from one person yes, to another? Yes, they go in your wallet, and now you can do whatever you want to with them. They're yours. It's like I gave you $125. I gave you $125, give you 125 bitcoin. You put them into your wallet, do whatever you want to with them. Well, the very first transaction uh, is called Pizza Day, and the bitcoiners worship that day. It happened in 2009. Uh, a guy in Europe, a guy in Jacksonville, Florida, went on the Internet to a chat room and said, I will give, and I, I don't remember what it is, 10,000, I think it was 10,000 Bitcoin, if someone will have two large Papa John pizzas delivered to my house. Now, at that time, Bitcoins were not worth very much, worth like a penny, two pennies. They weren't worth anything. And uh, someone took him up on that and called Papa John's in Jacksonville, Florida, bought the pizzas, had them delivered, and that guy transferred the 10,000 Bitcoin to the other fellow. That was the very first Bitcoin transaction ever done. Today, there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of transactions done every day. People trade Bitcoin constantly, constantly, all day long. Okay, but the real question I have, which is hard for me to grasp, is why can there not be, why does it have to stop at 21 Because million? that gives it the value. It's finite. See, it's finite. If it's not, it'd be like our dollars. Our dollars are what's called fiat money. They're infinite. They don't have any value. They have no value whatsoever. They only have a value of what you believe in them. That's your belief. It has no value. Bitcoin has, imagine if there was only a billion dollar bills. That's it. There's no more. And they just get moved around, around. Those dollar bills would have a lot more value than right now where there's hundreds of millions and millions and millions of, of these things out there. 
Bitcoin is set up at 21 million. So, get, so when they get to that point, each one of those coins is going to be worth more money, more pressure. Is there anything to prevent another whole cycle being started? No, it, it, the program stops at 21. It absolutely stops. And, and then see, Satoshi Nakamoto created what's called blockchain. That's what he created. And that's what made it work. When you pay your credit card online, when you use your credit card to buy anything, it's made possible by blockchain. Before, you couldn't do it because they had no way of knowing if you paid it once or twice. They had no way of keeping up with it. There was no way to, to deal with it. Blockchain allowed that to happen. And what Nakamoto did, he created it, and he applied it to Bitcoin, and then he gave blockchain to the world. He didn't sell it. He just gave it to the world free. And that's how, how he did it. That's what's interesting about it. This, this, this program that he created that's worth, imagine if he had kept it and sold it or patented it. He didn't. He gave it to the world. And, and that's why we can do what we can do with credit cards today is blockchain. Blockchain is impenetrable. You cannot, you cannot hack it because one block builds on the next block on the next block. If you're going to hack it, you've got to hack every block. <laughs> and there's billions of them. <laughs> you know, you know, there's no way to do it. They're locked up in a chain all the way down. Once they lock, they're unlockable. They can't do it. That's what makes blockchain so wonderful. That makes it where you pay your credit card, you only pay it once. You don't get paid twice, or they say, well, why didn't you pay it, or, or, or you pay something twice. You can't do that with blockchain. It's an amazing invention, uh, creation that he did. He published a white paper in 2009 and basically gave that technology to the world. So if we get to 21 million mm -hmm. and the value of each coin keeps rising as we – you know, at some point, is, aren't they going to be so expensive that they're not going to be – That's the question I asked because the, the Bitcoiners will tell you that they envision a day when they're worth 100000 each or a million each. And I said to them, well, who's going to buy them? What happens when, it, when a Bitcoin's worth a million dollars? Who buys it? I mean, you've got to – you got to have a million dollars to buy it, you know, to, or something worth that to buy it with. And but they don't really answer that question. I don't get a good answers in those questions uh, of what happens at that point. They're just it's it's almost like a religion. Bitcoin is in some respects. There's a great belief in it and a great uh, they have a lot of faith in it. They really do. What I have a problem with it is, is that you are basically betting your entire existence on something that you have no you can't touch it, feel it. You can't see it. You, there's no regulation of it. There's no nothing of it. You saw the guy with the exchange who stole the billions of dollars and they arrested him. Well, when you give your Bitcoin to an exchange, now some of them are extremely reputable, have great reputations, and have experience behind them, and they do a wonderful job. Right, so you're talking about Sam Bankman-Fried? Yeah, but this guy was whole different. It would be akin to you taking your life savings and walking down the street and knocking on a stranger's door and handing it to them and say, would you please hold this money for me, and I'll come back and get it in a year or two. That's literally what you do when you put your money in exchange because you have no idea where it is. You have no idea who has it, who holds it. There's no regulation. You're basically banking on the reputation of that exchange is what you're doing. Now, there are some that are extremely reputable that people deal with all the time, but the there are others not. That's, there's where the problems come. The Bitcoiners do not want any regulation. They don't want the government involved in anything. Well, the problem is it's the Wild West when that happens. You know, and, and so as I told you earlier, it cuts both ways. That, that freedom cuts both ways. All right. 
So <clears throat> let's talk about Cotton, because Cotton Malone is our guy here. He got in the middle of it. Okay. He's drawn in, yeah. Right, and Cassiopeia is there and the whole bit. So what's what's Cotton been up to since his last um, outing, and does he come to Switzerland to kick this off? Well, he comes, uh, and he's just doing a favor for Derek Coker, who was a character in The Last Kingdom. And he gets uh, connected with this woman who he doesn't r realize at first because she's changed, but it's a woman from his past. It's a woman that he thought he'd never see again. And there's there's something, I can't tell you anything, I don't want to give it away, but there's, there's, there's something going on there that has to be dealt with that's extremely serious. And it comes out of nowhere. It catches him off guard. And uh, she's a, a woman who he knew y years ago who was in a terrible accident and, and basically had her face redone. Everything was redone. She doesn't look like herself at all anymore. And uh, he didn't recognize her at first, but then he realizes who she is. And so there's this, uh, what he has to deal with. As I've said before, in every Cotton Malone book, I deal with something different from his personality. I explore something new in Cotton's personality. Here, we're exploring something really difficult and hard for him uh, something from the past that he didn't see coming. And it's going to form some basis for some future stuff, too. Some future things are going to happen. How many have read the book? Just a couple. Oh. <laughs> okay. It had to be both of us, right? Yeah, so I, I don't want to tell you then. Right. It actually doesn't go on sale till tomorrow. Yeah, so we're getting, you guys we're getting are a little special tonight. You're a getting little a, bit early. You're getting a day early tonight. Yeah, but all right. Uh, but what was cut? What is his brief? Why is he sent to Switzerland? He's just we doing a favor. He's just doing a favor for Derek Coker. Coker says, <laughs> "I need you to keep an eye on this woman. Just make sure she's okay till I can get back. I don't want anything to happen to her." And then, of course, all hell breaks loose and everything happens to her. And but then he realizes that he knows her. And that there's something there that from his past, and then he gets drawn into this whole thing, and uh, it was it was interesting, you know, dealing with it. I I I didn't start off to have this in the book, but it happened during the book, and I said I think we're going to go there, and you'll know when you re read it. You'll know what I'm talking about. I I didn't start off to go there, but I did. <laughs> go there <laughs> you know alert alert yeah i just right. uh, it just came to me about three quarters of the way through the novel i said you know that'd be really neat if we yeah right. let's do that and it didn't require a lot of rewriting to make that happen i could do it and it uh, basically happens in the last chapter so you'll see it at the very end ah a clue so you'll yeah. be able to look forward to it don't so go uh, to the end first <coughs> <laughs> don't do don't. that no so a good thriller, a great thriller, needs a great antagonist, needs a really bad guy or an unstoppable guy, if not necessarily a bad guy or gal. Um, so it's more interesting in this one because it's not just one bad, one antagonist, it's multiple antagonists. Catherine Gledhill, she's a difficult, she's a tough... Well, she is, but she's not working entirely by herself. Oh, either. no, she's got help. She's got over there. Now, that's actually a real per person, Catherine Gladhill. She lives in our neighborhood. and uh, <laughs> but her Did she pay money to oh, yeah, the Oh, yeah, she did. She actually did. We had this charity auction, and her husband bought, and they asked me to put a character up because I don't normally do that much anymore, but I did it that night. And luckily, he bought it, so I knew her. And she came over to me immediately. She said, I want to be the meanest, baddest, nastiest <laughs> character that you can possibly make me. I said, no problem. I got 
And you did. I, no, she really She's an is. amoral sociopath, mm. man. She is. Pretty much is. And so, uh, and then her mother's name, her mother's in the book, and that's her mother's name, actually, too. It, Mary Ellen is in, uh, no, Madeline. I'm sorry, we, we, it was going to be Mary Ellen, but we changed it to her daughter. That's her daughter, Maddie, Madeline, is her mother in the novel. And her husband, Brent, is her father in the novel. So I, I do this some, I do this a lot. It's a family affair. It is, it is. Definitely. But they paid a lot of money for that. So I said uh, they were worth it. It was a charity, nice, nice contribution they made that night. She's unquestionably a real hard ass. But, you know, in a way, in a way, what she wants to do is we can't all discuss that either. I thought it was really kind of interesting. Yeah, she, she starts off, she's just greedy. But then it gets worse. You know, that's what happens when greed takes over. You get you get more and more, and you push it more and more and more, and then finally she just kind of goes, she just loses it, you know, because she wants so much, and she wants it all in her hand all at once. And it, she was a fun character. I had a lot of fun with her. And uh, the lady uh, the, the lady from Cotton's Past, her name is uh, uh, Kelly Austin, originally a book. She's one of our neighbors. But her original name was Susie Baldwin with a Y, and that's another one of our neighbors. So uh, Su Susan Baldwin's, but she's called Susie with a Y, and that's what Susie does at home. She says, I'm Susie. If you meet her, she'll say, I'm Susie Baldwin with a Y. She always says that. Okay, so did the husband pay in Bitcoin? Uh, no, he paid cash. <laughs> he, he paid check. He paid check. You know, uh, uh, no, her her husband's a very is a president of a major financial institution, so he's a... He's a big in big in the financial area, and so. But he, uh, he, it was fun. Everybody had a good time. She loved the character. I mean, she's read the book and she loved it. Uh, most of the characters, almost all the characters in the novel, are named after people at home. Uh, Derek Coker, who's the the agent in there, he's our builder. He built our house. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was in Last Kingdom. Who else is in there? Wells, but who else? I'm trying to think of more. No, that's uh, no, that's Luke Brooke. I've forgotten. I've forgotten who they are now. But there's, uh, yeah, Peter, Peter's in Fourteenth Colony. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. So I, I try to use people that I know if the name fits. If the name, if if it fits. Um, one, there's a guy in here that runs the bank. He's a little, kind of annoying little character. But I needed a clever name for him. So we knew this fellow named Wells Townsley. Wells Townsley. It's a great name. Wells Townsley fits that character perfectly. And uh, and he loved it. He had a great time being there. And why do you say it fits in perfectly? What is it about the name that matches the character? It just makes it, you know, Wells Townley. It sounds, he's a fancy kind of guy. He wears his little bow tie, and he's he's all chucked up, and he's very prim and proper, and he, you know, he, he walks around, and he never, mm -hmm. never. That's not the name. That's the person you're yeah, associating. Yeah, but, but that name fits. No, yeah, but it. the name fits it. You know, it just, when I look at that guy, when I created my mind, well, he'd be a Wells. That sounds right. That sounds about right. You know, I wouldn't name him, you know, Kirk or, you know, Bill. No, I mean, or, it's know, an interesting know. question. It comes <laughs> up a lot when we have these discussions about how authors arrive at names for their characters. It's how you see him in your head. Yeah, but, but we've also heard some amazing answers about people, you know, like pillaging tax rolls or death rolls or going to cemeteries or, you oh, know, I, phone I, directories. I did phone directories for a long time until I started naming after people I know. And if you went on a Steve Barry's trip, I used most of all the ducks. You know, I, I would call them ducks on the trip. I use all. I've used most of them in the novels. I've I've used a lot of them in the novels. Yeah, there's two back there. Right there killed both of them. I mean, you killed you killed him, didn't you back there? That's what you did. Yeah, Diane killed Alex in one in the, the Lost Order. 
Yeah, so I, I, I try to use them because it's fun. Uh, you, you have to be a good sport about it, though. You well, know, right, you know. but no, what I meant was, you know, it's interesting the connotations that we have for names. I mean, there's, I hope there's nobody here named Bruce. Please tell me not. Um, it's, it's a name that, for whatever reason, I can't stand. And so, you know, I just, I don't know why. I mean, I, I don't recall even knowing a Bruce, but there's something about the name um, that just... I never had one like that, where I just don't stand it. Well... But I think we all have, you know, emotional connotations to names based upon our yeah. own experiences. Yeah, I try to find them. Like I said, when I create the character, I got to find a name that fits it. Because sometimes I name it and I say, you know, that's not right. But that's and my I, point yeah. is how do you determine? It's just how I feel. It. It's just okay. a feeling. It's just a feeling when I go, okay, that's the perfect name for her. That's the perfect name for her. And or, Because sometimes I've named a character, written a book about three-quarters of the way through and go, no, it's not right. Something's not right here. And I go back and... It ha it's a feeling. It's just a feeling. Well, but here's an example. In your last book with King Ludwig of Bavaria, I've always thought Ludwig was a perfect name for that character. You know, he was a real name and a real person, but if you think about him and what kind of a person he was and what happened to him, Ludwig was an ideal name. Perfect, perfect name for him. Yeah, because that's, that's Louis, basically, in German. And he, and he was a big fan of Louis XIV. He loved him. Uh, and Richard Wagner as yeah. well. If right. I could ever write a pure historical novel, I would like to write it on him. Fascinating he character. is a fascinating and guy. We and don't, we don't know what really, in the end, happened to him. We don't know if he was a suicide. We no don't clue. know if somebody drowned him. No he was about to bankrupt Bavaria. He was, um, right, you he, know, just... He was just a fascinating guy, way, way ahead of his time in some respects. Right. And in other respects, he was an anachronism. That he just I think the Wittgelsteins were yeah. overbred by the time we got there. It was 800 years they ruled Bavaria. I know. A long time. And was the richest part of Germany. If you ever go to Munich, it is extraordinary what the residence there is like and other things. So I love that book because I thought that your association between – I, I don't want to spoil the book if you haven't read the last book. No, all right. There are two actual characters in it, in the I mean, historical figures, and I think the association that you thought of between them was extremely clever. I enjoyed that novel because I like that's my favorite part of the world, Bavaria. I love it, love it there, and we had a good time researching that novel and, and going there. Just right, that's where the Disney castle is, and then Ludwig was a castle builder, so you can enjoy all Do of. Do you those. know the story of Neuschweinstein by any chance? Mm. You ever seen it? You know the fairytale mm. castle. In there, right. well, Walt Disney went there in the 1930s. He said, "I love it." When they were designing the castle at Disneyland, they they basically just made a model of New Schweinstein. Mm -hmm. Well, they hadn't finished the model, and they were running behind, and Walt was coming to see what they did. So they turned it around. They just turned it around, put the back in the front, because they hadn't finished the front yet. And he walks in, he takes one look at it. I love it. That's what I want right there. And that's what you've got. If, when you go to Disneyland and you look at that castle from the front, that is the back of New Schweinstein, is what it is. It's very clever. No, it's really neat. And I never realized it either till I learned the story. Then we were at Disneyland a few months ago, and I went, "That's exactly the back of New Schweinstein. That it's designed exactly like that. That's how it came about. Just they were in a hurry, and he came in, 
turned it around. That's how it became. It's a much better castle from the outside than the inside. Yeah, not much inside. It's yeah, not really not all inside. that impressive yeah. inside. Yeah. So let's talk about all the places you go, because people are probably wondering why this is called the Atlas Maneuver, since we started out in Switzerland. But one of the things I've always thought was so much fun about your books is, oh, the places we go. Isn't that Dr. Seuss, I think? So Steve is kind of, <laughs> kind of an adult Dr. Seuss with, you know, bad people in it. Well, this one finishes up in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, and we were there. We went there. Anybody ever been? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. There's a, a, a hotel down there that Richard Branson has. Uh, he bought a palace basically in the mountains down there, and he made a hotel out of it, and it's there. Um, and we went there and went into the Atlas Mountains, and I, I, just, I loved it. It's beautiful. So when I was thinking of the location for this book, I said, that's where we got to go. We got to put it in there. Uh, it fit perfectly what I wanted to do. Uh, Switzerland we've been to, but not to Basel. But where else do you go in the book? Uh, Luxembourg, which mm. I did not get to go to either because of COVID. So I didn't. I had to do Luxembourg and and Switzerland uh, without going there. But There's a very cool small castle in Luxembourg which you can stay in. I'll have to send really? it to you. Okay. Yeah, no, it's we want to go to Luxembourg. That's on our, our list of, of visiting and going to see, particularly the northern part up where Catherine Gledhill's estate is. That's supposed to be really beautiful right up on the uh, Belgian border right up there. Uh, I'd like to see all of that. Luxembourg's a really tiny place, very tiny place, but a banking haven. Uh, but the, the, the climax of the novel, almost the last 40% of the novel takes place in, the Mor in Morocco in the Atlas Mountains. It's a really exciting book, plus you get to learn a lot. Those are my two goals for this year. We want to entertain you and give you, in, you know, let you learn very cool things and avoid politics. Those are actually my three goals for this year. I stay so out of that. There's no politics no, in this book. We're not no, doing no it. No politics no, in we are book. not. Everybody needs a safe place, you know. Because my come books now are basically international, so I don't really deal with American I don't. I, I did five American books, but not anymore. Yeah. You know, so the, all of mine are take got out just in time. That's yeah, for sure. I did five of those, and uh, and and we did it on purpose because we wanted to increase our readership here, and it it did. It did great. But uh, this one's international. Next year's will be international. Cotton is going off to Tuscany next year. I'm going to ask you where you're going. He's into so Tuscany. do we have wine as an integral part of the plot? Uh, not an integral plot, but it's there. It's in. It's present. In. What's in, what's the integral plot is the Palio. You ever been? The horse race, one of the greatest horse races in the world. It's the Kentucky Derby with no rules. No rules. You can do whatever you want, man. It's a, it's a free-for-all. So is Bitcoin going to carry over in the betting sphere? No, no, no. no. Uh, Cotton, Cotton's going to run the Palio, though. Yes. He's going to be in the Palio. I, I didn't think that was possible, but when we were there last summer, we watched the race. There was a 47-year-old jockey in the race. There was actually a yeah, – so you – you have to qualify to be a jockey? Hmm. You're hired. You have to bring your own horse. You're hired by the Contrada. The Contrada ah. hires you. The Contradas are the neighborhoods. There's 17, and uh, I just created an 18th one for mine because I wanted my own Contrada to work with, <laughs> because they take their Contradas very seriously. So I didn't want to disparage any one of them, uh, and so uh, the Contradas hire their own. They're usually Sardinians who they hire. They do not hire locals because they're too susceptible to bribery. Bribery is perfectly acceptable in the Palio. They bribe each other's driver riders. They make deals among themselves. They double cross. They lie. It's a whole drama, but it's amazing. And uh, Cotton's going to get caught up. It's called the the Medici Return. It'll be out next year. And uh, yeah, and then there'll be another Cotton book in 26 and 27. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. Meantime, you are also writing with Grant Blackwood, and we've already agreed to do um, a virtual event in June. We will. But I mean, it's cruel to make him come back to Arizona in June when he's been here in February, right? <laughs> I just can't bring myself. The second, it's the second Luke Daniels book comes right. out in June. It's called Red Star Falling. It's a great story. deals with Russia and something left over from the Cold War. And uh, it was a lot. Of, it's, it's, it's a really good story. It'll be out June 11. We're writing the third Luke Daniels book now. And then next summer, I have something different. Um, not action, history, secrets, conspiracy. Just action, secrets, conspiracy. No history. It's a suspense thriller. I wrote it many, many years ago, and it never got published. I rewrote it about six, five, six years ago. And I've been wanting to publish it. It's basically, if you like Grisham, Baldacci, or Harlan Coben, you like this. So it's Steve Barry like you've never read me before. I think my readers will enjoy it, but it's diff- a little different. It's called The List. It'll be out in the summer of 25 because uh, Grand Central bought it. So it's going to come out then. And I, it's the second manuscript I ever wrote in my life. And it, was, it was, wasn't publishable in that form, but I rewrote it, and now it's much more publishable. Uh, it deals with a small town in Georgia and a, and a paper company that has a very, very unusual way of controlling its cost. So, uh, and some of it's autobiographical because I lived in a small town with a paper company. Yes, I did. So uh, it, uh, it's, it's a good story. I've been wanting to do it for a long time, and God bless Ben Severe. He bought it and let me do it. I love it. So something is it like the killing floor? Yeah, but not as much killing <laughs> as the killing floor. But uh, it's it's it, Reacher Margrave Georgia. It's great. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean Reacher goes in and just wreaks havoc in there. This one is a little more grounded in what I lived because I was there. I lived in a company town, so I mean, what what was a company town? It had it evolved out of that. But I got an idea one day. What would happen if this? And I wrote the book. It didn't get bought. It never, it never got submitted because it just wasn't in. It wasn't ready for prime time. And can, I'm talking about uh, craft-wise, it wasn't ready. And then around 19, around I don't know, 2007 or 8, I rewrote it. And then a couple of years ago, I rewrote it again. And and each time I rewrote it, it got shorter, which is good. It got tighter and cleaner and shorter. So now it's ready to go. And uh, so I think if you like Grisham, Baldacci, or Harlan Coben, you're going to like this book. You're going to like so this, this book. This is the other side of being a lawyer. You could actually be a career criminal, right? Well, we, we see a lot. Mm. We see a lot. Mm. Yeah, and this one, this one is interesting. It's based on a lot of things that I actually did see, you know. That, that, but you just know, David that. Baldacci's April book, we will have signed copies of it because David's always nice enough to do that, is uh, John Grisham, too. It's, um, it's a courtroom drama. It's not like his other different. books, and he's, it, like you, worked on it for a really and long he's time. He's probably, we're all that way. After we write so many for a while, we like to do something different. And I, and I, I, I have a sci-fi novel that I've written 15,000 words of. I want to finish it. I really do. It's a great story, and I just got to finish it. I got to sit down and, and do it. But the problem is they, you get pigeonholed, and you got to do what, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to make a living, you got to do this. You know, you got to make these. Well, aren't you fortunate that you might find another road to publishing if you ever finish it, right? I'm trying. <laughs> if I can get it done, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, if I can get it done, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a cool story, and uh, it, it's something that occurred to me years ago, and I think it. it yeah, made John me Sanford wrote a really great sci-fi he novel did. with with a friend, and um, I loved it. 
and they unfortunately never never went back to it. But um, I thought it was a terrific it was story. A, it was a passion project for him. Yeah, it I, was. Him and I talked about it. He, sure. It was something he wanted to do. And I'd like to finish this one. I'd like to finish it my, myself. And I will. I'll get to around to doing it. But right now, I've got to I got to do I got to finish the third Luke book, which we're working on now, which is going to be really cool. It's going to deal with Disney, which is really neat. Oh, the yeah. mouse. Yeah, mouse went deal, out of copyright. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. We live near Disney, so Disney's very, uh, we like, uh, we, we're very big. And a lot Disney. of drama swirling around the mouse house, you know, in Florida. We so live down, we live down there. Do. So this is an interesting thing. It deals with really Walt Disney's trip in 1939 to South America. I didn't uh, even know he'd gone to he South did. America. He uh, did. The State Department sent him down there on a goodwill tour in, tour in the 1930s because uh, Germany was and Hitler were making inroads down there, yeah. and they loved him down there. So they said, will you go down there and on a goodwill tour, but while you're there, keep your eyes open. <laughs> keep your eyes open. And uh, he did. He actually did. He did it. And so uh, it deals with that trip that, as you said, a lot of people don't know about. So we're going to put all that together in Luke Dan in the in the, the final Luke Daniels adventure. Sounds great. How about questions from the sure, audience? Why don't you take those? Come to sit there, people. Yes, sir. In the back. You can't you can't hack the blockchain. But you can hack the exchanges, and you can hack, and you can't hack the wallets unless you know the password. If you know the, I don't, know, I should have made this clear earlier. There are 19 million Bitcoin right now that have been created, but only 16 million in circulation. Around 20% of the Bitcoin are lost. You have your Bitcoin, and you have the key to open your wallet, which is a 24-digit passcode. If you lose that passcode, it's gone. It's gone. The wallet's gone. You can't you can't get it back. You can't go get it anywhere else. And about 20% of the Bitcoin they estimate are gone. So there there won't actually be 21 million when they're done. There'll be something around 18 million, 19 million, something like that, because of the Bitcoin being lost. To be hacked, no. You, hacking blockchain is literally impossible. Uh, okay, but, but if it's a 24-digit code, then. Most people can't keep that in their well, head. Well, you write it down. Or you well, no, I understand that, but that's what makes it vulnerable. Well, that's it's up to you to protect how you do it. And, that and, part and could and be. And in know. the book, I explore some very innovative ways that people hide their, their codes. There's a lot of ways they do it. Now, some people get around that by putting it in exchange. You know, they get around that. But if you want to privately hold your Bitcoin, you create your own code to get in. Now, people have hacked some of those. That has happened. Uh, but the the blockchain itself can't be done. Can't be done. Yes, ma'am. So one of the things every time I read one of your novels, I look forward to hear. I typically listen. So hmm? I'm drinking your beer, by the way. So yeah, I, I agree. He does a great job. Great word, of course. You're the you first one that's ever noticed it. <laughs> I didn't know that I did. I look forward to it every book. Do I do it in every book? Every book. Oh my God. That's a subconscious. That's like my friend Jim Rollins puts the word sluice in a book. <laughs> well, who uses the word sluice? I mean, time, you know. But but he does, and now he does it to irritate me. 
he puts it in there just to make sure it's in there. No, I have to look. I didn't realize that I did that. That's interesting. No, I'll keep doing it. That's Come on, it's the other way around. He'll be sure to use I just it. must have done that completely subconsciously because I did not have not that. We can know it. But sluice we noticed in, in his books quite a bit. Yes. Be nice, wouldn't it? But we're still at different houses. He, uh, he's still with Harper, and I'm still where I am. So well, he's not. He's actually with Harper and with Tor. Well, he has the tour for the fantasy books. Yep. But uh, the thrillers are with Harper, and he just did signed up for two more with them. So who would publish it? I mean, we actually talked about it because he went out to contract. He was going to think about moving to another house, and I, he talked to my house. And that was some of the talk. If he came, would we do it? It would be kind of fun the, yeah. to, to do it. It's not like what Patterson's doing. You know, he's writing the next Michael Crichton book, and he, they're teaming up. It, it's it, it's a interesting little gimmick that helps sell books, and that's what you need today. So Jim Rollins, he'll be here April 22nd with Doug Preston and August 6th to launch his new Sigma Force book. Mm -hmm. I'm the only person probably in this room who can tell you what day of the week August 6th is. <laughs> Oh. More Patrick, questions? are there any questions from the virtual audience? Patrick often emerges from his well. lair, wherever he is. Are you there? You're there. I love it from around the corner. We hear it. Well, in the meantime, while he's thinking about it. Oh, well, there you are. conversation online, uh, socializing. People are tuning in from all over the world. Um, Okay. Talk to me. There you go. Yes, sir. I didn't really study those, to be honest with you. I studied Bitcoin because that's the that's the number one. It's the there's Bitcoin and then there's everything else way at the side. Bit well, they they are because first off, they're infinite. They're not finite. So. And that's what the problem is with the money in your wallet right now. It's infinite. And every time they print more money, your money becomes le worth less, worth less. Every single time more money is printed. You saw the other day one of the, uh, I think, um, the congressman from New York, she suggested, why don't we just print $3.4 trillion and pay off the debt, which is actually a clever idea. Just print, print the money, pay off the debt. The problem is it would make the money in your wallet worth absolutely nothing because you'd have three point because all that money would be paid off go back to the banks as interest they would have that money which would go into circulation and your money would become literally worthless mm -hmm. uh, that's the problem with some of the other cryptocurrencies bitcoin gets around that by being finite when you say cryptocurrency define that a there's little there's all better. kinds of different ones they have different they go by similar things they you you create them online in some mechanism and create it they all have uh, there's there's maybe hundreds of cryptocurrencies but uh bitcoin is the one with the most reputation the most history behind it the most everything associated with it and the most value because of its finite being finite weren't there bitcoin uh, atms as it were there are in certain places they have yeah. started they've started showing up yes yes um okay christine would like to know she goes tell us a little bit more about the fantasy uh, sci-fi book plot oh gosh i can't do that <laughs> she would i don't want to give it away i want anybody to steal it 
but it deals with a subject that fascinates me, and that's the blot. I love it. No, I can say that one thing. It deals with mermaids, which fascinate me. The whole concept fascinates me, but uh, something a little more grounded than uh, not not what you're thinking, mermaid. Something more grounded in science, in science that. Um, it's very interesting to me. I stumbled across it a few years ago, a book that was written many years ago. Um, and uh, I said, that would make a great story. I mean, if I could put it together. I hate it. I don't want to say it someone will go steal it and write it before I get a chance to write it. But, but it, it deals with mermaids, but not like you think. Okay. Not like you think. <laughs> well, I knew we were going to get this answered on the tour, so so we have to say that we we did have to get a little, so that I could honestly answer truthfully that yes, uh, but but it's not really my thing to be honest with you. It's not my thing. It's interesting. It's fascinating, but it's not my thing. You know, I own a Bitcoin and I have absolutely no idea <laughs> what it's about or what to do with it. So you just hold it for a just while. Just keep it, right? And at some point, the value will go. Sell it. Because you can sell them really easily. There are hundreds of thousands of transactions every day of people trading Bitcoin all day long. All day long. Let's see. Are there only going to be three Luke Daniels books? Right now, that's all. Right now, I think so. But I'm not going to say never, but that's what we are right now. And this third one will come in 26, 2026. Ooh, ooh, gosh. He's asked me that question. What's my favorite Cotton Adventure? See, I love all my children. I really do love them all. I mean, it, that would really be impossible for me to say because each one, I really loved it when I, when I loved it, when I wrote it because I, I immersed myself in it for 18 months. It was part of it. I really enjoyed it. I, I have none of, I will say this, none of them I regret. None of them I feel are subpar or not as good as the other. I think they're all equally good with each other. They're all different. That's what makes them interesting. They're all very different. The trick of a series is it has to be the same but different. Every book has to be the same but different. They're the same because the characters are the same, and there they are. But they're different because different history, different bad guys, different motivations, all those kinds of things. Different locations. Different locations always. I don't repeat any of that. So I really love them all. If you ask me what's my best book, I would say here. The one I just finished, yeah. If you ask me next year, I'm going to give you a different answer. A, a, any writer who doesn't say their latest work is their best work is a problem <laughs> because you better be getting a little better every time. You never get great at it. You just get a little better, a little bit better at it as you go along. History. The history is there, and the niche I've carved for myself is the history is 90% reality. I keep it as 90% as close as I can. Trip it up 10% tell you that in the writer's note in the back where I trip it up. But I keep it as close to reality, and that's what makes these books so challenging to write because I have to weave all that together. Like, how do I make Yamashita's gold connect with Bitcoin? Well, I finally figured out a way. How do you make that work? Where it makes sense. And not only does it make sense, there's actually facts that back, up, back that up, that connect it up. Now, there's a little tripping up in there, and I told you what, what that was at the end of how I – had to make that final little connection. But 
That's Are you anticipating did. starting some sort of pirate adventure in the Philippines when people read this book and head out there to see if they well, can dig it up? People have been looking for that gold for years. There was a, a show on the History Channel, I don't know if you remember, uh, lost gold from the World War II. It was on for two seasons, I think, and they went digging all over northern Philippines, found nothing. Well, there's in theory, mm. there's a shipload of gold or a train full of gold somewhere buried in some lake in somewhere in Europe. All uh, that, all that theory, train, all yeah. that, and the train disappeared and all those things. The, we know Yamashita put 175 vaults in the ground. We know that for a fact, and we know that only a few of those have been found. Where the rest of them are, we don't have a clue. That area is really mountainous, hilly, and right, treacherous. And the landmarks probably They're don't all gone yeah, wouldn't exist pretty anymore. Much gone so, yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were considering writing a historical uh, nonfiction book, possibly. Oh, it would be fiction, but historical fiction. Okay. I, is, is, is any plans? No, I love to do it, but I just, I just can't because I have to write these. <laughs> the, and they, uh, I would love one day to do it. It would be fun to write a pure historical fiction novel, and I think Ludwig would make a great subject of that novel. It really would. But I, History Matters is our foundation that Elizabeth and I have. We go around and we help communities raise money for historic preservation. We've done about 90 projects, raised uh, right around $3 million in, uh, for communities. Um, we try to find the right mix and the right place that everything works. If we find that, we go in and we do it. So if you, I tell people all the time, if you have an idea or you have something we can do, you go to my website, steveberry.org, History Matters, send me an email. We'll see if we can make it work. Okay, anything else? Hmm? Hey, here's an interesting question. Do you ever regret something you've written? I don't think so. I've never regretted you know, anything, no. I don't think I've, anything that I've written, I regret. No, I really don't. Uh, I'm very careful with selecting what I do and how I do it. I read the novel about 60 times before it's published to go edit and go through it, it over and over. I don't have anything. If I did, I'd take it out. Uh, but I can't think of anything. I'd say, boy, I wish I had not done that. How, how do you deal with your with your character aging? Is it in real he time? He doesn't age. Or do you does just keep age. him no, frozen no, in amber? No, none of the characters have aged in about 12 years. I stopped about 10, 12 years ago, and Clive taught me that. Uh, we were at Thriller Fest one day, and I, we were talking about that. And he said, well, Dirk, he's, he's got two grown kids. I mean, you know, came out of nowhere. I have not aged him in 50 years. I said, well, that's so I stopped aging. Uh, the Cotton's World just basically stopped the time. If you're going to write adventure thrillers, you really have to you do have that to. because it's unbelievable it. if somebody gets... You know, I always remember Nevada Bard. Those of you who remember her in a pigeon series, which I truly loved, and she was a national park ranger that did all kinds of, you know, physical, strenuous stuff and all, and then she quit because she got Anna to be 50 and said that she couldn't credibly behave like that anymore yeah and, and that's the danger i and think i learned that into. lesson from clive he taught me that so i just stopped cotton's staring 50 cassiopeia is getting close to 40 and that's all i ever say i never say any more than that and basically all the adventures just stack on top of one another in the real life and that's the way you, that's where you have to do it you know otherwise because i mean dirk pitts i mean 1968 spent 50 years Almost 50 years, you know, and uh, and literally he's got two grown kids. Where do they come from? Because, <laughs> you know, Dirk would be like 75 years old with those old kids, and he's not. But you make it work, and the reader accepts it, and I accept it. It was fine. And 
uh, I did the same with cotton. So, no, I hope he goes forever. Any of you object to that? No. no? Yes, ma'am. God, that'd be great if that would happen. <laughs> I would love that. I mean, no, unfortunately, no. I've not had any of that. Now, during it, I've had a little bit where people have said that, you know, this is a little too close or, or whatever. Now, the King's Deception was probably the closest one where I had a problem with that because originally in the King's Deception, the bad guy in that novel was a character in Northern Ireland. And my British publisher said, I can't publish the book because it's too close to reality and it will set things off over there. It's too close to things. So I changed that bad guy to be an American, to take that element out of that. Uh, that may be the closest I ever came with that, that happened um, because it dealt with a, a theory that, you know, is not completely insane and, uh, you know, it can actually have, you know, you never know. And the 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 attitudes over there about the land that was taken from the Catholics by the Protestants back to Elizabeth I, it's still there. <laughs> I mean, the anger is still there. It's all still there right now. And so I had to change that. That's about the only time I think I made a significant change knowing something could be a problem. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Let's see. Will you be going to BoucherCon in Nashville? I will not. No, I will not. Okay. Uh, yeah, someone points out that Clancy's Hunt for Red October was published almost 40 years ago, and Jack is still going strong. Going strong. Outlived his author, he even. He is not there aged is either. Junior, though, so, you <laughs> know. He is not aged either, and uh, that's, the, that's another th lesson to be learned. Somebody had a hand up. Yes. Are we ever going to see Cotton from Dixon? Well, we hope so. Uh, you know, again, as I've told you many times, <laughs> a lot of talk, and uh, so we'll we'll see. Uh, there's interest. There, there's always been interest, and there's 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 more recent interest. There's interest, so we'll see how it goes. I don't I don't know the answer to that. You know, I've said this before. You know, I just it's hard to say. All right. Anything you'd like to ask the audience? N no, just buy the book. <laughs> Be nice. Mostly have. Mostly have, yeah. I hope, I hope you like it. I enjoyed this story very much. And I like my, this is my first orange cover. Uh, I've, we were trying to get a new color, and I said, I want orange. And so I actually participate in the design of the cover. So I'm and that's a Bitcoin? That is a, uh, it's, it's an old historical coin, but right. I had them put the Bitcoin emblem on the top. So it break apart, give you a, a little, you know, a little hint of what may be going on there. Then we had the, you know, the Moroccan look at the bottom. So this is a, a new color. You don't see orange in thrillers too much on covers. Uh, I've got a lot of black and red and, right. you know, and blue. It's very dramatic. So, I uh, like yeah, I thought I thought it fit well for this, uh, for this book. Uh, I'm very peculiar about covers, so I, I take a very active uh, interest in the covers. Uh, we're designing the one for the Tuscan book right now. Excellent. Yeah. So you should have a letter from Steve in your copy, and if you don't, um, we have extras. We still have the letters, right, John? NATO, are you asleep? <laughs> <laughs> no, we still have letters in the back? Yeah, okay. Um, we, 
I'm hoping, if you care, that we have enough of the uh, little photo spread of Basel, Switzerland. Does everybody have one of those? We might not have printed enough, so, okay, great. Um, in that case, I'll let's... I'll be glad to sign whatever you got. Right, let's do it. but wait, we're well, not there yet. Well, no, 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 well, no, we're not there yet. You got to plug CJ. Uh, well, no, this is, I try to give away a book to thank all of you for buying a book. And John, what do we have? Thank you. Um, first of all, let's thank Steve for another wonderful conversation. 